The talk last week was on the force of desire and how this is a force that, as we all know, has the potential to create incredible misery when our desire fixates and grasps and turns into an addictive kind of a quality and how if we bring the power of mindfulness to what's happening desire paying attention to desire actually taps us into our love for life it brings us alive and what I'd like to do is continue that theme which has really been described by the Tibetans as uh, that the poison is the medicine that these forces that seem so difficult really are the very in essence with the proper attention, the alchemy is that they wake us up. To bring that theme this week to the flip side of desire, which is aversion. And in particular to the quality of fear. The kind of question our filter will have for the evening really is how can fear, how can the presence of fear that we really don't like, none of us want it, but how can it actually serve our spiritual awakening? And a question that we can ask ourselves really at any time in our lives is, how am I relating to the fact that fear is here? Fear is a given, but how am I relating? You know, do we ignore it? Try to turn away from it, get busy, hate ourselves for it, try to get rid of it. Do we feel like we're bad because we're afraid? To start with and say that, that every human on earth has fear. It's said that if we don't experience fear, we're brain damaged, you know. It's, it's universal. I love this line from Rumi. He writes, whatever comes into being gets caught up in being, drunkenly forgetting our way back. Whatever comes into being, every life form, any being that takes incarnation, that has a shape or a form, forgets, like a wave, forgets that it's really made of ocean. We forget our source. That the very nature of our incarnation is that we think that these changing forms are self and are separate. We forget our way back. We forget that we belong. And in that forgetting, in feeling separate, we're afraid. There's no difference between feeling separate and feeling afraid. Fear is the mood of the separate self. So what are we afraid of? You know, we have different levels of it. We think we're afraid that we're going to get a parking ticket or not get a job done or that we're going to make a fool of ourselves in a certain situation. It gets deeper. We're afraid that our health is jeopardized, that these bodies are going to get sick and die, that these minds are going to become senile. 
we're afraid that we're going to lose everything we love. One old Zen teacher described it this way. He said, I ask myself, what is bothering me? And something pops up. Then I ask myself, what is really bothering me? Something else pops up. Then I ask, what about underneath that? What's really, really bothering us always is mortality, the fragility of this life. So we're all walking around with that. You know, we all have this uh, very real, immediate sense. We know it again and again that it's all temporary. And if we're very attached to this particular existence, as Chogyam Trungpa puts it, we become like this tense muscle that's trying to protect itself always against the inevitable. And then it fixates. This, this fear of our fragility fixates on, on different certain areas. How are we in this world? Are we going to be rejected by others? This fear of that something's wrong or is going to go wrong makes us move through life very carefully. We lose our spontaneity. Something around the corner. There's that feeling like any moment something bad could happen and that we have to protect ourselves. There's a fear that any moment I might lose control and do something stupid or, or let somebody down or in some way embarrass myself. You know, we, we have that in us. Now, I heard a wonderful story some years ago uh, about a 15-year-old Hispanic guy that, had, uh, that grew up in Los Angeles and he had been in a violent neighborhood and was in gangs from the age of 13. This guy's name was Juan. And he was very, very bright. He was also very mean. He was tough. He kind of walked around with a chip on his shoulder. And he had the feeling that that was all he had going for him. His world was so rough that just acting bad was his only way to survive in, in this world. So he was sent by his family to Boulder, Colorado one summer to try to get him out of that environment and maybe give him a shot at of a different flavor of life. And um, some of the people in Boulder that he was staying with were involved with uh, Chogyam Trungpa, Tibetan teacher, and brought him to some events that this Tibetan teacher was leading, which is kind of an interesting combo. So he went, and I'll read to you what, how the story goes. He came to an event where Chogyam Trungpa was, and at the end of the event, Trungpa Rinpoche sang the Shambhala anthem. This is written by a member of the community. Now, this was an awful experience for the rest of us because for some reason, he loved to sing the anthem in a high-pitched, squeaky, and cracked voice. He just got a kick out of it. So this particular event was outside, and as Rinpoche sang into the microphone and the sound traveled for miles across the plains, <laughs> Juan broke down and started to cry. Now, everyone else was feeling awkward or embarrassed, but Juan just started to cry. And later he said he cried because he had never seen anyone that brave. He said, that guy, he's not afraid to be a fool. 
And that turned out to be a major turning point in his life because he realized that he didn't have to be afraid of being a fool either. That all that kind of persona and chip on his shoulder was kind of guarding his vulnerability. And he didn't have to keep doing that. And he was bright enough that he got the message. And when he went back to Los Angeles, his life really turned around. He ended up um, going, going through school and helping kids that were in trouble. Now, part of why I like that story so much is because we all have developed a persona that in some way is covering up our fear. And we're all worried about how others are going to look at us and worried that we're going to make a fool of ourselves. It's a worry, no? And so we, we develop these styles of how we move through life to try to make ourselves feel more safe and so that we don't have to face our, our anxiety so directly. So just to mention a little bit of our styles and see where you find yourself. Like what's, what's your style of avoiding that, that basic insecurity of I'm not okay or something's going to go wrong? One of our big styles is to push away fear and push away anything that makes us afraid, including other people. And this is really the source of all the violence in the world. Most of you know uh, John Bradshaw, who brought really to the public awareness, the consciousness, the power of shame and, and how we move through our day, how our fear of being deficient keeps us from uh, showing ourselves to each other and sometimes makes us lash out at each other. And I've always had this favorite cartoon that I'll share with you. Some of you know this, where John Bradshaw is hung up on a tree in the woods and there's these two bears that are kind of having a conversation about what to do with him. His name's Bradshaw. He says he understands I came from a single parent den with inadequate role models. He senses that my dysfunctional behavior is shame-based and codependent, and he urges me to let my inner cub heal. I say we eat him. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't like the messenger. We don't like anybody. If anybody makes us feel bad about ourselves, makes us afraid that we're not okay, our tendency is to, to push away others. Rita Rudner talks about her grandmother in that way. She says she was a very tough woman, Grandma was. She buried three husbands. Two of them were just napping. (laughs) (laughs) We can see it as a society, though, that, that when we're insecure, we go to war. When we're afraid, we execute people. We punish people. I mean, really, what, what would make us have to fight back? hurt someone when they've hurt. I used to watch my son when he was seven or eight always have to get somebody back or get me back. If I, if I kind of playfully pushed him, he'd have to push me back twice as hard. And I was always trying to sense, well, what is that? We're very afraid of feeling weak or put down. It makes us more vulnerable. So we have to push back, hurt other people. Another way we run from our fears is we do a lot of pretending. 
you know, somebody says, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? And unless we feel very, very safe, we, we put on a front. We, we don't let people really know that a lot of the time we're really nervous or scared or anxious or unhappy. We, we cover a lot. And when we, we feel that we've in some way strayed or misbehaved, we, we lie. We don't tell people. I, I've always enjoyed this. Have you ever heard the story about a driver who put a note under the windshield wiper of a parked car? The note read, I've just smashed into your car. The people who saw the accident are watching me. They think I'm writing down my name and address. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> But we try to pretend we're good, we're doing it right, you know. When we're trying to not face our fears, we withdraw. We don't really engage. I mean, we certainly withdraw from being intimate and real with each other, and we really don't show up fully. We also get very addicted to being right. Have you noticed that? That the more insecure you are, somebody else is, the more rigidly determined we are to prove that we're right, to be right, the more really reactive we are when somebody else might have a difference of opinion. Notice this recently, I have some friends very involved with Native American practices and um, a few of them lead sweat lodges, which is a Native American ceremony, and now there's this thing going on where they're kind of putting each other down for, well, this person's not really using the chance right, or this person. And these are people that are very close in their ideas of the world, but having to put each other down to make themselves feel more important. It goes on, you, you can see it in different religious groups. The, the, the people that are sometimes the closest in, in ideology go to war. Some of you know the story of a Taoist master singing, sitting naked in his mountain cabin meditating. A group of Confucianists entered the door of his hut, having hiked up the mountain, intending to lecture him on the rules of proper conduct. When they saw the sage sitting naked before them, they were shocked and asked, what are you doing sitting in your hut without any pants on? The sage replied, this entire universe is my hut. This little hut is my pants. What are you fellows doing inside my pants? <laughs> so these are different ways that we react out of our fear. We get rigid. We have to be right. We have to put other people down. We put ourselves down. We hide out. We pretend. Now what is this fear? that we're actually trying to avoid with all these machinations. In a very simple sense, you just kind of inside, what is fear? It's, it's a contraction. Fear is a contraction. There's some signal, something's wrong, and then there's a contraction away from our experience. It's physical and it's mental. It's been described as the body of fear because it involves what's called nama, rupa, body and mind. 
Our physical body gets tense, knotted up. Our mental body, our mind, gets busy with stories. So the first and starting point in working wisely with fear is to recognize the flags, to start noticing, okay, how am I running away? We all have our styles. It's almost the defining characteristic of our personality, the way we avoid directly sitting down in the rawness of fear. So we notice the behaviors we each have. Now what's interesting is you can't separate out what's going on in terms of the stories of what's wrong and what's going on in the body's chemistry of fight or flight. It can be triggered either way, this fear. I mean, you can take a chemical, it can stimulate your adrenals, and then your mind will start concocting stories about what's going to go wrong. And it can go the other way around. You can have an idea of what's wrong and keep playing it out and have your body get revved until your body is experiencing a sense of you're about to be killed. They're co-arising and codependent. So part of the way we begin to work with fear is to notice the stories that are going on, notice what's happening in our bodies. Now I've found recently, not recently, I found almost throughout the time I've been giving talks that whenever I decide on what I'm going to give a talk on, I get completely filled with that experience. (laughs) And so last week it was desire and I had a week of all this wanting mind, you know, it was great. (laughs) And then this week I was really aware of fear and it was really, it was quite interesting. Um, You know, I I realized I should just plan to talk on joy and happiness for the next (laughs) time. Become a master or mistress of it. So here I am in my life, the story that's going on is that, um, as some of you know, I'm writing a book and I am under some deadlines that are now, I'm way past them and I'm getting pressured by several publishing houses and um, it's, you know, it's gotten me to the point that when I'm not doing, when I'm not writing, there's some other things I can be doing without feeling like I'm off, but usually anything other than sitting by my computer writing and I feel like I should be doing something else. So yesterday I had to go out and do some errands. One of them was I needed to get some new running shoes. And I realized as I was doing my errands, it was like I was um, trying to catch a plane that I was going to miss. Or, you know, it was like something was really wrong. I could not just sit down into, okay, driving, driving, walking into store, try on shoes. It was like I was supposed to be somewhere else. Now, this isn't the first time I've had that experience. William James described it beautifully. He said that in our culture, we live in this ceaseless frenzy of always thinking we should be doing something else. Even when I'm writing, I should be done with the part I'm on and doing something else, you know? Even when I'm, uh, I'm I notice that I Sometimes I'll go running and I'll feel like I should be writing and then I'm writing and I feel anxious that I'm not out there running to get my energy up so I can go write again. It's like there's this uh, dissatisfaction or fear that what is happening right now 
is not okay, not a right, not enough. So our practice is to begin to notice, okay, so what story is running? Because we go around with this floating anxiety of something wrong, and it hooks into certain storylines, and our body then goes through its kind of contractions. Now, the Buddha said that these arisings of tension, of fear, of wanting, are inevitable, are natural, and turn to suffering when we're not willing to pay attention, when we push them away, when we judge them. Kafka said it a little differently. He said, you can hold back from the suffering, from these pain, from this fear. You have free permission to do so, and it is in accordance with your very nature. But perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided. saying two things. He's saying, not only do we get afraid, it's our nature to try to get away from our fear, to try to go faster, do different things, hide it, cover, pretend, whatever we do, that's our nature. We can hold back. And we have the capacity to face fear, to not keep running, to wake up. So what makes it possible to see the flags, see our mind getting busy, feel that ceaseless frenzy? You know how hard it is to pause when we feel revved and just sit still, that anxiety of something's going to go wrong. What will help us to actually stop the running and sit down, reconnect with this energy that has been so difficult for us. Many people find that if you consider it like you're learning or cultivating a relationship with fear, that we're actually learning how to befriend fear. And, and you might think of it just like how to relate to a frightened child. How would you do that? Now, we know our ideas of good parenting tell us that you wouldn't punish the child for being afraid. You wouldn't say, you know, that's bad to be afraid, you're a baby. If, if you were really a strong boy, you wouldn't be afraid, or, or a girl, you know. We, in other words, we wouldn't put a child down for their fear. We wouldn't deny or negate it. We wouldn't say, oh, you don't really feel that, you know. There's no boogeyman under the bed, you're being silly. We acknowledge it's real. Not the boogeyman, but the fear. We wouldn't feed the fear. We wouldn't say, oh, yeah, this world's a really terrible, scary place. You can't trust a person. Look, around, look under your bed every night, <laughs> you fool. <laughs> you know, we wouldn't do that either. So, but we all got those, we got usually some of those messages. And if you look at how do you relate to your own fear, usually there's some intolerance with it or impatience of it or not liking of it or feeling like something's wrong with me that I get so caught up. We take it real personally. So it's valuable to start and sense, okay, just like a child, you know, what does this fear want from us? If you asked a child, you know, what do you want, really, from, from an adult? The response that we would get is presence, 
we want that adult to stay with us and care. You know, that they, that they are right showing up, staying with us and caring about what's going on. And that's what we are challenged to offer to ourselves. That we're willing to stay present when fear's there. Not scurry around and busy ourselves. Because in that scurrying around, we're really neglecting a very vulnerable part of ourselves. So Buddhist meditation is actually a very clear and elegant training in how to be present with fear. We begin, as you know, with mindfulness, where we just get in this practice of naming what we notice, which is a really powerful tool. If you start using it, Sometimes you can name it by literally labeling, oh, fear, worry, anxiety, tightness, tension. Sometimes it's a more silent kind of naming, but there's a very clear recognition, this is happening. We name it and we accept it's real. In other words, we're not accepting the story, yes, there's a boogeyman under my bed, but we're accepting, yes, I do feel afraid. Fear is here. I had a client some years ago, a woman who was always got, felt that she got felt very intimidated and diminished when she was around any male that seemed intelligent or intellectual to her. And she thought the fear was so silly, so irrational, that she didn't even want to acknowledge it to me for months. But it kept happening because she was in work settings and in relationships that it came up. And a real turning point in therapy was when she could take off all that extra layering of, I shouldn't have this fear, it's a stupid fear, it's irrational, and just say, okay, this is real. This is a real fear. And when she did that, she started getting in touch with, you know, how her father had shamed her when she was young, and and a very deep sense of her own insufficiency. That's the first step, is to say, okay, real, acknowledge, not, not condemn in any way. One Zen master, when asked, how do you relate to fear, he said, I agree, I agree. (laughs) Okay, this is what's here. Henry David Thoreau, if a dog runs at you, whistle for it. You know, rather than going like this, okay, fear. So, So we begin by just naming, okay, fear's here, and acknowledging it respectfully. I think it's very powerful in developing this relationship with fear, just as we would with an, a vulnerable inner child or outer child, is to say hello, is to acknowledge, okay, yes, this is here, I agree, or hello, or sometimes namo, which means I bow, if that word is something you like. It's an experiment, I invite you to check it out, that when you feel a strong wave of fear or other emotion, just mentally say hello with a gentle voice and notice what happens. There's a whole shift in who's afraid and how you're relating to fear. And since the problem we run into is we feel victimized by the fear, identified by the fear, with the fear, reactive to the fear, we decondition that whole complex in the moment that we say namo or hello. So that's just something to invite you to experiment with.
So the first part, mindfulness, notice what's happening. Name it, say hello. Then we pause, not to get rid of it. See, our reflex is we're doing all this so we can get rid of it. And forgive that when that comes up, because it's always going to come up. We don't like it, so we're trying to get rid of the fear. So just notice that too. But then, can we just pause? Remember the child that said what he or she most wanted was just stay around, be present. Can we just pause? Not do anything, just pay attention. Now this is, we're getting to kind of the the heart or the essence of mindfulness practice when we pause and just pay attention to how it is right now. And there's two qualities to the awareness when we're paying attention that's fully here. Let me just name them. One quality when we're paying attention, kind of like a microscopic lens, is we're connecting with what's happening. We're actually feeling it in a very immediate, direct way in our body. You can just feel in your body now and sense if there's something anywhere that's an emotion or sensation that's strong, that this precise connecting is to feel directly in your body how it is. And it helps when it has to do with fear to feel your throat, your chest, your belly, because this is where emotions most strongly present themselves. So this is a connecting quality of attention. You can ask yourself, what is asking for attention in here? Just like a parent asking a child, hey, what's going on? What's bothering you? So if you want to strengthen that lens of connecting, we didn't get asked that, a lot of us. I mean, our parents didn't know how to deal with our fears, didn't always have the sensitivity to know we were afraid. So for many of us, that question, what's bothering you, never came up. But sense the power of it if you ask yourself, okay, so what's really bothering me? What wants acceptance or inclusion this moment? The very nature of inquiry is an invitation to connect. It's like that vulnerability feels like, okay, somebody's interested. I can kind of come out of hiding. So we're talking about the connecting lens still. This is one thing you can explore. And you can just sense right now, can you feel how your awareness connects in a more immediate way with what's going on? What we find sometimes is that if fear is strong, or if what's going on, the emotion of the moment is strong, that we can get flooded or carried away. So there's another quality of attention we also need. Not just connecting, but also a sense of the space that it's all happening in. Child needs to be seen, recognized, okay, fear's here, but also held in a kind of space of care where there's room for what's going on. There needs to be room. So this is the other lens of awareness, which sometimes I call a wide-angle lens. This awareness that feels what's happening here, feels the squeeze and soreness and clench and hurt, 
but also senses, hey, there's, there's a space and there's sound and there's other humans and there's care in this world, that we don't lose sight of the big picture. One of my favorite illustrations of this wide-angle lens. Again, uh, Chogyam Trungpa, this Tibetan teacher, was giving a talk to, he, he usually addressed thousands of people, and he had this big sheet of white paper poster, and he had a little V on that poster. And he said, what's this? And most people said, it's a bird. <laughs> and finally, he, he just shook his head and he said, it's the sky with a bird flying through it. You understand? What are we paying attention to? We can get riveted and flooded by a wave of fear. Or we can also hold the sense of the awareness, the bigness, the heart, that the stream of fear is arising in. We need both lenses to be able to really be present. A lot of meditation is a balancing of these two lenses so that as we're sitting we notice, hmm, I'm connecting, I'm feeling it all strongly, but there's no space, it's all tight and, over, and I feel overwhelmed and small and out of control. And then we know we need the wide-angle lens, we need to, to remember more what's, where the space is. One of my friends described how when fear was overwhelming she imagined that she was on a park bench and the fear was next to her. And she and her fear were sitting there and she's looking at it and she hears the birds and sees the sky and there's plenty of room and gradually she can sense that that fear that's next to her is also inside her because her awareness gets enlarged. So this is part of the balancing when we feel tight and small. Wendell Berry puts it this way, When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives might be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty in the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of silent water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and I am free. In this balancing, we need to find our pathways to, to the spaciousness of awareness, which often is in nature and with others, that the earth is big enough to absorb our tears and the sky is big enough for us to to scream or yell and have it taken, held. So we find what's big. Now there's other times that we feel dissociated or disconnected where we know that we're behaving from an anxious place, we're acting uptight, we're judging other people, we're judging ourselves, we're pretending, we're caught in our personas, but we don't feel connected to our bodies or any particular emotion. 
because we've all been pretty well trained to leave our bodies, you know. So that's the other side of the balancing. How do we come back in and bring that connecting awareness? How do we really ask that question? What wants attention? And learn to feel our bodies, to breathe in and connect with what's here. Now I mentioned that when we ask that child, what do you most need? The child needs our presence. The other piece is real care. It's not good enough just to show up if there's not a quality of heart. So this is the second part of what we bring to the places of fear inside us. Many of you know this story of a very frightened man that approached the Dalai Lama and he said, you know, I'm, I'm filled with fear, can you give me some meditations? And he expected that he was going to be taught how to, you know, summons up all sorts of strength to be able to deal with it. And the Dalai Lama just kind of said, no, just imagine that you're being held in the heart of the Buddha. Just imagine the arms of some caring being holding you. The Buddha taught that our fear is great, but greater yet is the truth of our connectedness. Now that is the key, because we cannot be with our fear unless we feel in some way connected, in some way held by our world. We're too small to try to have this ego handle fear. We need to feel a sense of the love in this world that can hold it when we're feeling really afraid. Let me tell you a story of a client I worked with. She has been meditating for years, but when she was young she had a very abusive household. And her father was an alcoholic and would go into rages and at times he would hit her. Mostly it wasn't physical abuse, mostly it was uh, screaming at her. But she described one night of him being really abusive and her running up and hiding in a closet and the terror she felt that any moment he was going to barge into her room and, and punish her even more violently for how she was wrong or bad. And she fell asleep in the closet. And as an adult she'd be meditating and sometimes she'd hit this point where she felt that same terror that at any moment something horrible is going to happen and she was going to be attacked and violated. And she couldn't keep, when that would come up, she just couldn't keep sitting. She would have to get up and move or eat something or call somebody. And she felt like she was a coward, she, that what's wrong with my spiritual practice that I can't be with this and face my fear. So we started working on it in therapy and really what we were doing is a joint meditation. We would sit there and first we'd just affirm, well when you were young you were alone in the closet but now there's, here we are together. And she knew I cared about her. And we'd sit and, and then we'd sit together and then she'd say, okay I'm going to go in and touch what's there. And she'd go and imagine and sense that little girl and sometimes she'd even bring her knees up to her chest and shake and, and hold herself like in a kind of womb-like way. And um, We did that a number of times so she started getting used to going in and, 
and being in that fear and then coming out again and then going in and being with it and coming out which is really a skillful way to work with fear when it's strong to touch it some and then when it feels like too much to move away, do something else the idea is not to to get flooded or re-traumatized so after some weeks of doing this we did a kind of guided imagery where she asked the question I've been saying tonight she asked that child in her what is it you most want from me? and the child told her to care enough not to go away kind of like stay with me mommy you know and so she got very quiet for a while and I could just see her body kind of became maternal and her face got really tender and as she described later she she felt this resolve to stay to really stay with that little being now in this case this was called therapy you know but really she was getting the assistance of another person's presence to feel that kind of belonging to something larger so she could then bring that presence inward and there's a reason why our relationships with each other as spiritual friends are in therapy are not something small and psychological only we're not meant to face our fears as a separate self that's an idea anyway we learn to bring presence to this inner life sometimes as we sit and practice on our own and sometimes with the support and the presence and the love of others because the truth is we do belong and we keep having to rediscover that I know for myself for ever since I remember beginning spiritual practice I would when I especially when I felt overwhelmed and small like a small little self besieged and deluded by intensity I would call out to my sense of the beloved and the beloved was in some way that universal and loving awareness that really I belonged to and was who I was but when I felt small felt like it was something greater and different and that in calling out it relinked me with the truth that this loving awareness is holding our lives in every moment Haviz writes don't surrender your loneliness so quickly let it cut more deep let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft my voice so tender my need of God absolutely clear when we don't move away from our fear but let that fear be there fully we naturally invite and open to that spirit of loving kindness and awareness that is big enough for fear Rumi writes of night travelers who search the darkness instead of running from it a companionship of people willing to know their own fear 
And it's because they realize that in the tenderness of the pain, we reconnect with our awakened heart. The very nature of facing fear is that we open to that care that has room for fear. He writes, don't turn away. Keep your gaze on the bandaged place. That's where the light enters you. Not to turn away from fear, but to bring that presence, just as we would to a child that's frightened, stay here and care. And what happens? We become the awareness that's staying here and caring. Now this is the shift that the Buddha described over and over again, the alchemy, the transformation that happens when we stay present. We begin by thinking we're separate. We begin by feeling uh, pounded by our fear and victimized by our fear, like we have to fight our fear. That's how we start. And then, by having this willingness to practice with fear, to be awakened by fear, what happens? We be with and we become that open, caring presence that's holding a space for fear. We shift from the victim to the one who knows and cares, our true nature. This is the power of it, that there's not an energy, a pain, a fear, a desire in this life that arises that if we are not will, if we're willing to be with it, we can become the fullness of who we are, that awakened heart. We think it's going to be too much. We have this feeling like we're going to get overwhelmed. And sometimes it is too much, and sometimes it's wise not to lean into what's there, but rather to take a break, have some tea, go for a walk. And we need to, sometimes our nervous system's just not resilient enough. But eventually our path is to have the courage and the care to show up and stay here with our inner life. The Sufis put it this way. They say, overcome any bitterness that may have come because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is part of her heart and therefore endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain you are sharing in the totality of that pain. We have room. One of the beauties of practice is that the more moments we decide to stay put and feel what's here, the more the confidence that we can handle whatever is going on grows. So rather than a life that's carefully constructed around controlling our experience, we have this confidence that we can handle life. And the fruit of that is that we get to live our life fully, spontaneously. We get to love freely because we're not so busy defending and managing things. So I've spoken a lot and I think what might be nice is just to do a bit of a meditation on some of this 
uh, using our own experiences. If you've been sitting and you're uncomfortable, take a few moments to stretch and then come back sitting again for the last few minutes. This won't be long, by the way. come sitting again, do yourself the favor of re-relaxing so that you come into stillness and let go a little of some place in you, wherever you can soften that might be holding tightness or tension, so that you can feel the breath moving in and out in a relaxed body, a relaxed awareness. the practice perhaps that most cleanly shows us the two qualities of awareness I mentioned, the connecting and the openness, is tonglen, compassion practice. So we'll do a little bit of tonglen, which is another way of describing presence with what's here. And I invite you to pick something in your life that wants your attention, where there's feelings in your body that are in some way difficult to be with. And it might be feelings of fear, but if for some of you it's more to do with grief or some other flavor, uh, whatever wants attention right now. So you might just scan your life and sense, as we all have some areas of fearing, of not getting what we're wanting, a feeling of loss. Sense what wants your attention. And if there's something about that situation that's compelling, some image of a person, another person, a a setting that's visual, then see it clearly. See the place that's most distressing to you. sense, what's the worst thing about this? What's really bothering you? And then what's even really bothering you under that? If there's words that go with it that somebody said to you or that you've been telling yourself, they're part of what causes pain. Let yourself hear that in your mind. What's the worst thing about this? And if it's hard to connect with anything particular, then just sensing whatever's predominant in your experience right now, tonight. Tired or restless or whatever it is. So that you begin now with that connecting attention, just feeling your body where this lives the strongest. Feeling your throat, your heart, 
your stomach. Taking some moments to just let that really be felt fully. Sometimes we breathe in and feel like with the in-breath we're contacting what's most difficult right in our body, willing to touch what's here. Willing to be here for that part of ourselves by connecting with the experience. You can sense you're saying hello to this. Yes, this is real. Let me touch this. Just pausing and breathing in and feeling what does it feel like, this fear or sadness or whatever it is. You can sense as you breathe out that this is existing in very open awareness that you breathe in and feel in a very physical, embodied way what hurts. And you breathe out and sense that this hurt is floating in open space, in awareness. You can let the sounds around you remind you of the space that all this is happening in. You might sense the beloved, that caring awareness, your own awareness, that's paying attention right now, so that you breathe in, feel what's here, breathe out, sense your experience held in awareness. Don't worry if it's hard to coordinate the breath, just those two qualities of awareness feeling what's here and letting it be felt in an open space of attention. We can watch the knots of pain and hurt express and unfold themselves in the light of awareness. Not trying to make anything go away but committing our presence and care. Continuing now, but imagining all the beings that might also be experiencing this energy you're feeling, this hurt, our pain, our confusion, our sadness, or sleepiness, whatever it is, so that as you breathe in now, you're breathing in for all of us that also feel this. And as you breathe out, offering your care. Offering that awareness, that space that knows Breathing in for all of us that are afraid, confused, sad. Breathing out 
offering care. taking a moment to check into your own heart and sense just how it is, how it feels, where you are. Sensing how this heart, like all hearts, simply needs attention care, presence. As Rumi says, don't turn away. Keep your gaze on the bandaged place. That's where the light enters you. When we learn to pay attention to the vulnerability within us, we're also learning to pay attention to the suffering of all beings we become the bodhisattva, the one who cares. We'll end with the chanting again. Tonight we'll chant the sound current of ah, A-H-A, and just chant it continuously till you hear the bell ringing. Feel free to harmonize, but let the care of your heart and the sound current blend. Please inhale deeply. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.